Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity to go to our Facebook page, like the page, and offer your commentary if you choose, you can follow us on Twitter at 814-NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Thank you so much for tuning in. My daughter studied law at the Elon School of Law in North Carolina. She had a keen interest in law since she, was, since she was a child, and she was in the process of practicing family law. Very interested in how some of these adverse circumstances that, that children are faced with affects them mentally. And as she began to study and work with different groups, she interned in various offices. She had a, a situation that allowed her to interface with a particular family and their children. And in that, in that meeting, she saw some things in the children that just concerned her. And when she started to talk about mental health services, it was not necessarily welcome commentary from the family. And she cross-referenced that to a lot of things that she had heard growing up, not just from my family, but from friends and relatives around us. She also watched my journey as I went through a, a handful of adverse circumstances myself. And contacted a mental health specialist and decided to sit down and undergo counseling over an extended period of time. We had a lot of conversations about that because she was curious, what made you take that step? Especially when, unfortunately, in the African-American community and many other ethnic communities, counseling, dealing with mental health uh, issues and just dealing with your overall mental health wellness, approaching that is anathema. And we are taught something completely different when it comes to how to approach our mental health, our mental health wellness and awareness. And so that brings forth this show today. I wanted to bring, uh, bring about a couple of professionals so that we can discuss this very issue, mental health in the African-American community. I know there are a lot of efforts, not just in Erie, but throughout the country where people are going after this and trying to encourage populations of color to sit down and really try to wade through some of their emotional struggles, some of their mental struggles, and to break through the stigma so that we can just kind of make wellness a part of people's everyday routine. It's been very difficult, but a lot of people are staying the course. Today in particular though, we wanna go after just what that looks like from the perspective of the professionals that we bring on today. So with that in mind, I wanna welcome a couple of people to the show, Mr. Cherno Berry, who is the board chair of Community Health Net. Uh, Cherno, welcome to the show. Good morning, thank you for having me. We have Ms. Chelsea Curlett, who is a licensed professional counselor. Chelsea, welcome to the show. Good morning. We have Dr. Adrian Dixon, CEO, President of Sarah Reed Children's Center. Dr. Dixon, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And Mr. Maurice Clark, who is actually welcoming me and uh, joining me in studio. Mm -hmm. He is a nationally certified counselor and medical integrated behavior health consultant at Community Health Net. Mr. Clark, welcome to the show. Good morning. All right. And so I'll start with our ladies first. Dr. Dixon, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, and how you found yourself in this profession. Sure. So my background is um, from an undergrad perspective, I had a dual degree in psychology and Spanish. And um, initially my thoughts was I really wanted to go into psychology and work in forensic psychology. Um, I ended up coming to the Erie community and um, went to, to Gannon University. I later got my PhD in counseling psychology 
And while I was um, in graduate school, I worked in the mental health community or in the human service community. I did some work at um, St. Vincent's um, Hospital in their inpatient units and in their outpatient programs as I worked on my um, post-masters in marital family therapy. And I have a long-standing history with Sarah Reed Children's Center and working in their partial programs and their residential programs. I recently transitioned over the past year and a half into the CEO and president role um, at Sarah Reed Children's Center. And so um, the, the work that I have done has worked predominantly with children, but also a huge component with families as well as substance use. And um, I'm also a professor at Edinburgh University and the program head for our counseling program. So I educate emerging counselors in the field. One of the reasons why I stayed in the Erie community because I'm not originally from this community was because of the disproportionate number of uh, black and African-American or people of color who worked in the human service, particularly in the mental health field in this community. Thank you for that. Chelsea, talk to us about your background, what you currently do, and how you found yourself uh, to this profession as well. Okay. Um, my, my road is a little bit windier. I graduated um, high school, going to school for business. Um, I was there, I was unhappy, changed my major a few times while in college, um, and then I landed in psychology. I did an internship at one of the residential facilities in Erie, and I fell in love, fell in love with the, with the girls, fell in love with the work, um, and fell in love with the impact that I thought that I could make, um, not only in that population, but just in general. So it was during that time where I said, you know, this is where I want to be. I want to be a counselor. Um, I went back to school, got my master's in counseling. Um, I originally, you know, I have a school counseling degree. I like to keep my options open. I have a couple things that I can do. Um, but I got my school counseling degree because I felt like maybe there's where I would see, you know, the population that I wanted to work with. I wanted to work with urban kids, troubled, things like that. Um, started out in after residential, after I graduated, I worked for, I did agency work for a while. Um, and in that agency work, it was definitely rewarding. Um, but agency work is difficult, just like residential work. So now I currently um, am the school counselor at the Benjamin Wiley Charter School. I was an admin for a while um, doing behavior, but again, my greater impact was in the counseling field. So I'm a school counselor at Benjamin Wiley Charter School. I also have a private practice that I've been doing for about six years. Um, and in that practice, I see adults and children, um, more so adults, now, um, my business seems to kind of be changing a little bit, but that's my rule. Thank you for that. Mr. Barry, let's bring you into this conversation. Talk to us about your role in this particular space and community. Uh, I'm an auto mechanic by trade for about 25 years. Uh, father, as my children got older and out of the house, I found myself with more time and I wanted to uh, do some volunteering. And I'm a part of a mentor program called North Star Mentoring. And I found myself uh, on the board of Community Health Mile by, by happenstance. And I really enjoy being on it, really enjoy the participation. And now I'm going to find myself to be at the board chair. And my role now is to try to learn as much as I can, 
uh, in this space as far as mental health and all healthcare in general and bring it back to community health net and share the knowledge that I've learned and try to help community health net and the community at large move forward. Excellent. And last but not least, uh, we're bringing over to Mr. Clark, who is with me in studio. Mr. Clark, talk to us about your journey into this type of work. My journey began with the, uh, in the criminal justice system. Um, I've got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Gannon University, and I used that degree to obtain a counseling position at the uh, Erie County Prison. And for several years, I was the intake counselor. And from having that position and interviewing all the people that came in and out of, in and out of the, the prison, I noticed a lot of mental health concerns, a lot of uh, educational neglect that wasn't taken into consideration when these people decided to uh, partake in the things they decided to partake in. And as I progressed there, you know, I, I saw the way how counseling was affecting these these uh, these inmates, and I decided to go back to Gannett and get a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, uh, which I utilized at uh, at LeCom. I utilized at the prison, and now I'm utilizing as an integrated behavior health therapist at Community Health Net. Mm. And what that is is that I work directly with the physicians. You know, someone who otherwise may not address their mental, their mental health because there may be some barriers. Maybe you can't get to them because they're out of reach. Maybe you, you, you may have some kind of idea that you're, you're embarrassed to uh, address this mental health, this mental illness. Well, we're in the physician's office and you can come and see us or we'll come and see you at the moment that that symptom is addressed. And when you make those appointments and you come see your physician, you're coming to the clinic and it's not seen as you're going to a mental health building. So that's where we stand and we're kind of being that bridge and that gap to reaching out to those people who would have otherwise not reached out to um, take care of their mental health and their mental wellness. Thank you for that. And so I passed on a couple of articles to our guests today and I, I wanna quote from one, I'll start with Dr. Dixon. After I read this quote, the article was called You're Not White and Other Reasons Black People Don't Go to Therapy. It's by a woman by the name of Esther Boykin, and it was for a webpage called Psyched. I'll read just one excerpt from it, and then, Dr. Dixon, I'll come to you. She says, as a community, black folks don't really embrace psychotherapy as a valuable and often, often crucial part of their health. We often follow a mantra of, quote unquote, keep it moving when things are hard or comparing our personal struggle to the horrors of slavery and racism, thus rendering depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder or marital strife, simply minor irritants that one can surely overcome with a little prayer and a lot less whining. And so with that, I'll go to you, Dr. Dixon, the stigma attached to therapy in the African-American community. Comment on that. What have you seen and heard over the years, and especially after you started studying this in a clinical sense? In a clinical sense? Well, I think the article does a nice job to highlight some of the challenges. So when you talk about the stigma in the African-American community, you know, one of the things that stands out is certainly historical um, trauma and what's the experiences of the black and brown communities. So the, the issues of slavery, discrimination, oppression, 
if you're in a situation where um, you're trying to survive, you're in survival mode, this becomes really difficult to stop, take pause and, you know, and, and, and address um, your challenges. One of the ways in which you press forward, you keep it moving, is that you don't think about it. You compartmentalize and you look at other ways to be your glue or ways in which you really begin to um, manage it. The church has been one of those resources and so yeah with a little prayer you say prayer you you stay you encourage yourself you encourage others you inspire hope through this act of prayers and as a group of people we know that this has gotten um a generation generations of african americans through very difficult times what that has resulted in is communities that are very distrustful of the process and for good reason however it also creates other issues on the back end where we're not really willing to talk about the issues that go on and the fear of being seen as quote unquote crazy or have demonic implications. You know, so you don't talk about that. You look at ways in which you push it off. And so the stigma has come about um, in, in these communities from longstanding historical traumatic events that center around um, depression, uh, depressed communities, oppression, oppressive kinds of techniques and strategies that are rooted at the or the origins of slavery in this in this country. So, yeah, it is very difficult to get sometimes a community to embrace this profession and to feel as if that they will be safe and that their issues will not be translated in a way that um, has a negative sense. Um, or reinforces a negative sense of self for them as individuals, but as a community as a whole. Translated, I like that. I'll come back to that word shortly. Chelsea, I wanna go ahead and, and keep going down this thought process with you because you mentioned uh, having a particular interest in students, especially in the margins, those that have adverse circumstances. Talk to us a little bit about the stigma, what you've seen and heard, and tie that directly to some of the students that you serve um, in the inner city? So I think initially when I started out in my career in residential, um, it was, you know, where I was at the time, there was a lot of girls from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So those girls definitely were not trusting of uh, the staff where they, you know, the staff where they were now again, they were forced to be there. So that creates a mistrust in and of itself. But I think as I've moved through my career and the more children and students that I work with, I do find that kids um, are more willing to share. And with them, I don't think that they're aware of the stigmas. I don't think that they're aware of the history of mental health and all of the things that, you know, people of color have gone through. So I think because of that, students are definitely more, kids in general, um, it starts to get kind of difficult when thinking about teenagers. Um, you know, they have their own set of ideals and things like that. But I think for kids, and that, because that's where a lot of my work has been, they see it as, okay, this is something that's helpful. You know what I mean? And I also think depending upon the type of counselor that they're seeing, it's, you know, this is just a conversation. Um, but like I said, as they start to get older, as they start to realize things, as they start to um, 
get into the history of, you know, color, you know, people of color and things like that, then that is when the stigma starts. So I think at the young, at the younger ages, um, there's a better chance of building those relationships and building the trust in the process versus starting kind of older. Um, so in, in my work in the school, because I'm there every day, um, and they can come and talk to me whenever or talk to other staff whenever it's it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's falling on deaf ears, but that still doesn't mean that we don't try. And I also don't think that that's part of the stigma. I think you're, you know, when you're seeing someone every day and they're, you know, giving you, telling you this or telling you that, I think it puts you in a different role. Um, like, you know, you're just like my mom and, you know, sometimes kids are like, you're always telling me something. So in that sense, I think sometimes it's just difficult, but when you're working with younger people, I don't find that they even realize that a process is happening or that um, there's a stigma surrounding the mental health field. Mm -hmm. Maurice, I want to bring you to this conversation as well. One of the things that uh, this writer also points out in this article is to go along with that stigma. Some people look at um, therapy as being for the weak, the self-indulgent, and most notably, most notably, the privileged. And if I can be frank, for many people, they genuinely look at therapy as a white people thing. Like we don't, that's not what we do. She points this out in the article. She says, in this country, black people are characterized as many things, but never weak, self-indulgent, or privileged. And so a lot of times it's kind of a badge of honor, in a sense, of not taking advantage of these, these uh, services. And so I'll go back to you, uh, this, this stigma. Give us your thoughts on what you've seen and heard with this stigma's concern. Now, as a black male therapist, uh, especially at Community Health Net, we, the community that we that we that we serve, we see we get a lot of individuals who have been in jail, who have been homeless, who have been through some adverse situations, who never wanted to have that title of of, of being weak, and what society has told us that having a mental illness you can be looked at as, as crazy, as weird, as a, a, a weak person if you suffer with mental illness. You're, chose, you're, you're told to just keep it to yourself and get over it. Uh, struggle, struggle through it. But what the problem is, is that we are never given the opportunity to to deal with, deal with it on, on the same playing field. Whereas some races that have depression and anxiety, they're seen as just that, depression and anxiety. But black and brown communities are, are so much seen as being disruptive when they have the same symptoms that they say that it's not even worth addressing it because this is how I'm going to be looked at. And we're trying to, to, to break that stigma at Community Health Net, mm. especially having a therapist who looks like the community that they're serving. Excellent point. And that's where a lot of the mistrust comes because how can their, their idea is, how can that person really understand what I'm going through? How can they really understand what I'm going through? Mm -hmm. And having someone who comes from the same community who has been through similar situations, so much more people are more likely to engage in therapy. 
and it's a beautiful thing that's occurring down at that at community health net because we're bringing in those minorities we're bringing in the homeless we're bringing in the incarcerated we're bringing in the the people who would have otherwise said that I'm not going to address this mental health. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to address this mental illness because I'm looked at as weak. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the commentary. When you have this discussion with people in everyday settings, for many of them, they're asking, are there black folk even in this space in the city? And partially because there's a genuine ignorance of what's available and who some of the key players are. Cherno, this, this goes straight to you because you said by trade you're a mechanic and so you find yourself on the board of this organization that Maurice is talking about, Community Health Net, that he's working within. This subject of, because my guess is a lot of people probably don't even know that that's one of the things that they go after at Community Health Net. And so as you're the board chair and you're listening to these accounts and you're reading the reports, give me some of your thoughts about uh, your agency going after the, the mental well-being of Erie citizens. Yeah, I think back in my life, I've never seen, saw a black therapist in school, uh, in a clinical setting. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia as a young kid, and I recall, I, I can remember very hectic classrooms, and I never saw any therapist uh, black we have some white therapists. So I think it's important, like Maurice said, to uh, have a certain comfort level. The doctors at Community Health Net, the patients have a certain comfort level with them. They really believe that they care about them and their well-being and don't look at them as others. And when you come and when they come to the doctors and they're, and they're at ease and you can bring in the mental health conversation, it, it makes a difference that way because they're already at ease. They don't think you're try they're trying to get over on them in any kind of way, and they, and they know that you're just worried about their well-being. I think that's a very important way of uh, approaching it. Mm -hmm. I want to read another paragraph or two from this article because I really think that she hits on some points that makes the average person, I know it made me think because, again, this is not my discipline. She says, movements like Black Lives Matter, because of them we can, and the civil rights movement boiled down to one common denominator. Humanity, I thought that was an excellent point. Racism is a social construct that steals, diminishes, and destroys the humanity of the people it oppresses. How can someone brutalize, marginalize, and exploit another human being? Easy. They adopt a mindset that allows them to become blind to the humanity of that person or group. And I'll read one more paragraph, and Dr. Dixon, I'll come to you for commentary. Therapy, at its core, is the honoring and healing of the humanity within each of us. I thought that was profound. It is a personal space to be seen fully, good, bad, and ugly, and still be acknowledged as worthy of love and kindness. It is an intimate relationship where you can voice your fears, pains, doubts, and even triumphs, knowing that the person sitting with you will treat your experience as important and valuable, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem in the context of the larger society. Those two paragraphs really made me sit up and think. Give me your thoughts as you listen to those words from this writer, Dr. Dixon. Well, you know, as, as I listen to it, I think what's, what's key that she captures, that as clinicians, as counselors, as psychologists, that's what we're trying to do. 
that a person should actually be able to feel like they can be naked in every sense of the word and not feel judged, but feel respected and honored, and that someone is going to cover and walk with them to be able to honor their experience. So I think she did a beautiful job at capturing that. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the historical context of what has happened in black and brown communities and particularly with African-Americans in our country is that mindset helps to shift away from that. So at the very core, if you don't recognize that individuals have this need for this experience, you can easily at times shift out of outside of that. And I think that fear is from people approaching counseling that that is what will happen to them, particularly based on historical experiences within those communities. But she captured it well. It's the very essence of what you do, is that you are to be with someone, sit with them, walk with them in a journey, cover them along that journey, and to let them, whatever their experience is, be honored and to respond to them mm -hmm. and, and to the humanity as she so graciously captured. Maurice, we talked about fatherhood the other month. Mm -hmm. And I had Brandon Wiley, who is at the VA and he works in this capacity there. And, you know, we had a lot of great discussions on this very topic. When you think about men, let alone black men, men, there are a lot of complicated issues that come along with manhood fatherhood, things along those lines. You layer in your demographic, your personal profile, a black man. And so what Dr. Dixon is saying, what this, this writer is saying, Ms. Boykin is saying, uh, is so eloquently put, when you add in the variables of being a black man, speak to that a little further, because you touched on it. This becomes that much more complicated, does it not? It does, because you know, as a, as a black man, you're, it, it's, it's, it's very hard to be vulnerable enough to speak speak your truth and to acknowledge the things that you're feeling. Um, you know, I read somewhere that black people don't overcome their emotional injuries, they just pass it down. Mm. And that's something that we have to eradicate and e erase. You know, I teach, I teach my children to open up, be themselves, and to speak freely regardless of how you may think that it may make me feel because in turn you're going to teach that to your children and that becomes the the cycle of how we address mental illness especially with 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 black men is being vulnerable enough to say that you know what i am depressed i am anxious i am dealing with these things and it's okay that i'm dealing with it you know, I, I listened to Dr. Juwanza Kanjufu one time, and he's, he said that we don't even allow our black boys to be black boys many times. You know, we are so fixated on, this is my little man, and, and, and I don't want you to cry, and don't let me catch you showing emotion, and all of these different things that you have handed down to you in terms of how you relate to young black boys, and the suppression just becomes more and more profound and they become um, kind of like these chambers of feelings that they don't know how to process. With that, I come back to you, Chelsea. This is already complicated stuff. Give us a sense of how you try to make these connections with young people who have yet to even figure out their emotions, per se, let alone 
be able to connect to what is wellness and where am I on that spectrum? How do you make that connection in some ways with young people? Um, so I think one of the things that I try to do with all of my clients, young, you know, older, whatever, I, is I really try to build rapport. I really try to allow my clients, especially kids, to, to know that I am a safe person. You know, this is a safe space for you to be able to open up and express how you feel. Um, in particular with kids, in, initially there's a lot of, you know, identifying what you like, identifying what you don't like. Um, allowing the child to kind of set some rules and set some boundaries of places that they're willing to go and not willing to go. And I think over time, once the rapport is built, you're able to kind of push those boundaries that they initially set up. And it's always beautiful to watch when you see those walls start to come down. Um, there's one little boy at school in particular who um, he just graduated eighth grade, actually. But when I started seeing him when he was probably in first grade I believe and every single day I would see him and he would run past me I would say hi he would tell me every day I hate you I hate you I hate you I hate you every single day probably until he was in the third grade um, but still every week I would get him for sessions he would come in and you can start to see you know me chipping away at that at that hard exterior because his mom really wanted him to be in therapy his mom really wanted him to express himself um and in the therapy room he would you know start to open up feel like he opened up too much suck it back in outside of the therapy room he hated my guts um but i i was able to create that safe space so i think you know that's the first step is building a rapport creating the space for the kids to be able to open up and talk and then once you've created the safe space and you've built that rapport teaching feelings identification teaching you know it's okay to cry um teaching other coping skills you know i tell my clients all the time the most difficult feeling that anyone deals with is sadness no one likes to be sad no one likes to cry what does sadness look like for you is sadness crying if it's not that's fine but what does that look like so you know teaching the kids at a at a young age or whatever age i get them at it's you know here are the main three feelings that you will always excuse me be able to identify with but then there are deeper ones what's underneath that how did that make you feel if that made you feel mad it's okay it's not about you know you not ever experiencing that feeling it's how you deal with that feeling when you are experiencing it mm -hmm. um and you know I, I definitely try to teach and try to explain feelings identification what those things looks like um i do you know coping skills are great things but i don't think that coping skills can come before you actually teach the feelings right you know what i mean like right. letting them realize um, what feelings are, why you have them, the, the nature of feelings and that they come and that they go. They're not always here to stay. Mm -hmm. So teaching that and then moving to the next step of coping skills and identifying, you know, what works here and what works there. Mm -hmm. And then just giving them the space to explore that. So I, like I said, I mean, working with kids is definitely different than working with adults. You still have to teach some of those same concepts. Right. But also, you know, I just find that sometimes kids are more willing to be open to expressing feelings. You know, and when they're not, you push. 
Several times it's been mentioned that these things, these issues, uh, these struggles get handed down generationally. And for some, it's been handed down from multiple generations. And when I think about students, myself working in youth development for many years, I've had the honor and the privilege of assisting dozens upon dozens of first-generation college students get themselves on some campus or even get acclimated to a job. And it's always been fascinating to watch them wrestle with some of the struggles that they've been given, some of the societal norms that they've been given, and to watch them process that through these multiple touch points of support that they've gotten, be it from pastors, coaches, friends, relatives, people that are involved in different programs that they've attended and things along those lines. And so I can only imagine the stories that you have to tell where that's concerned. But Cherno, as I think about you once again, being involved from, from your vantage point, how much has this changed your everyday conversation or even the way you view, you have viewed your own journey and your own family's journey after watching the work being done at this agency that you're board chair of? I can recall back maybe 30 years ago, I used to have conversations with my sister who passed away, she passed away maybe 25 years ago. Well, she always was, she was more enlightened than most people. She would always talk about therapy. She needs to go to therapy. And she just believed in therapy and I was against it. I didn't believe in therapy. I thought that if you believed in therapy, then that means you needed therapy. And I have since, uh, everyone else in my family, they were against therapy. They thought it was weak and you just had to be strong. And most people in my family, as I look back, they were very strong, but they uh, suffered internally and they never were able to express themselves to either a therapist or doctor or family members. And I think about all the pain that I see in a lot of older people these days who went through uh, segregation and really overt racism on a daily basis, sitting at the back of the bus. Uh, and they really internalized that and they had to just say, okay, we got to keep moving on, mm -hmm. keep moving on, like you said. And I can see the pain in, in faces that I, sure. I see uh, in elders in the communities. Now I can see the pain in the faces. Mm -hmm. I've told the story on an occasion or two over the years that I've done this show. My great-grandfather, Kane Arrington, in Altair, Mississippi, growing up, he watched his brother be lynched from afar. Ran and got his father, and uh, they had to cut this man down after the fact. And one of the, one of the, the benefits, if you will, of, of having a parent that has you at an early age, like my mother did, that I, I had an opportunity to get to know my great-grandparents. Intimately, my great-grandmother died when I was 10. My great-grandfather died when I was 17. And when he would tell the story of his brother's lynching, it was one of the few times that you would ever see my great-grandfather get emotional. The time or two that he told the story, you know, he, he couldn't even finish it completely. But there was so much suppressed sadness and frustration and anger with that moment, and I think about that now, even as a 51-year-old man that has seen his fair share of things in my lifetime, my God, how do you process that? You know, and suppressing it must be that much more difficult. But I wanna go to this last segment. I really wanna drill down on Erie in particular and talk about what this looks like in Erie, because on a macro level, it seems like this story is pretty universal. 
But Dr. Dixon, I'll start with you and, and for the rest of you, if you want to chime in at any point uh, without me necessarily going your direction, just shoot me a, a nod or what have you and let's bring you in. But Dr. Dixon, I'll start with you. Give the listener and the viewer a sense of where Erie is, the African-American community, to the best of your ability. I know you've dealt with this for quite some time. What does this conversation look like for Erie? You know, I think in Erie, we are, we're certainly like other communities, other black uh, American communities across the country that we're starting to evolve. There's still a lot of challenges, obviously. You know, again, I started out by saying I came and stayed in this community the lack of black professionals, particularly in the human service um, and the mental health um, arena. And so we do have more professionals. We have professionals, you know, um, that are represented on this um, call today and others in the community. I think one of the challenges for Erie is that they're not always in um, public spaces to be accessed. So, mm. you know, organizations, human organizations like that of Community Health Net, even Sierra Reed Children's Center, we have an outpatient program that's located downtown, you know, others, Achievement Center, et cetera, are looking at ways in which we can connect with um, the minority community, the underrepresented minority community in particular, and be able to have professionals that look like them that, that, that can respond to some of the things and concerns that they may bring to the table. But we're far from it. We have a need for a greater need for more uh, professionals of color, both black and brown, those who are bilingual, bicultural, mm -hmm. to be represented across those systems so that the community can see that they can access that and that there are people who look like them and can appreciate their journey, both the immediate journey the historical context that we bring to the table because all of us are carefully taught over time and by the experiences that we've had within our own journeys mm -hmm. and we bring with us the baggage of our ancestors and those who have gone before us and so having people that have an appreciation for that or at least the thought that they have an appreciation for that at least opens the door and creates greater opportunities for the community to be able to access. I don't I think that we're in a place that um, African-Americans, Latinos, et cetera, we're all starting to say, listen, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I need to be able to have places where I access that I feel like you're going to be able to respond to my need. And that is a real concern for mm -hmm. our community. I wanna now reference an article by uh, Tammy Persicelli Persicelli, the historical roots of racial disparities in the mental health system, another article that I sent to all of our participants today. And I wanna to touch on one of the things that she says in this article that was actually on the page two that was actually referenced by, by Maurice not too long ago. It says the vast majority of mental health treatment providers in the United States are white. For example, approximately 86% of psychologists are white, less than 2% of American Psychologists Association members are African-American. Some research has demonstrated that provider bias and stereotyping are relevant factors in health disparities. And so I go back to a word that Dr. Dixon used uh, in her commentary in the first segment when she talked about how your experience is translated how it's translated. My daughter spoke about that as well. There are some social and cultural norms in the African-American community that may not be so normal in other communities. And I think about simple things 
It doesn't necessarily have to do with mental health, but simple things like touching someone's hair. I think about how cavalier some groups are about, hey, can I touch your hair? For black folks, it's like, no, can't touch my hair, can't pat my hair. And it, it, it's for some people, they say, well, what's the big deal? It's anathema in the black community. But I give that as one small example of just societal norms. So Maurice, I'll go back to you with this, because you, you touched on it a little bit as well. What the everyday interactions of people of color looks like has everything to do with how you may or may not interpret what you're hearing from this person is color. Talk about the importance of that, because I think that if you are not a person of color, you think that there is a one size fits all to this approach. And let me go a step further before I hand it to you. We have a society that is based upon the sensibilities of white people, white men in particular. And that's just a cultural fact of America. What we are given as a society is based on those sensibilities. And so without even being in that space, I can imagine that they're taking that one size fits all mentality and saying, well, I don't, you know, and, and addressing these issues from that vantage point. How important is it is, is it, Maurice, to just have your human experience properly interpreted by someone who understands and gets it? I think it's, it's uh, immensely important, especially when it comes to uh, diagnosing somebody with a mental illness. Mm. The importance of really digging into what this looks like and why this may be is, is incredible because you have to rule out certain things when you, when you give a proper diagnosis. You have to rule out a, a, a medical concern. You have to rule out a substance addiction. You have to rule out many things, but, what, but one thing that people fail to realize or rule out are psychosocial concerns. What is happening in your life that could contribute to why you feel the way you do, why you make the decisions you decide to make. And when you neglect that thing, that proper diagnosis may never occur. You may never get the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. based off of uh, living in and coming from a dangerous neighborhood, a gang-infested neighborhood, a drug-infested neighborhood. You may never get that diagnosis of PTSD, depression, or anxiety. What you're most likely going to get is that schizophrenia diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I read something uh, in the in the 1960s during civil rights. The the DSM at that time listed dangerousness as a symptom of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Now it's no longer in the DSM now, but taking into consideration all those people during that time who were thought of as you're rioting, you're doing this, you're dangerous. They got that schizophrenia diagnosis. Mm. And even someone like Malcolm X was wrongly misdiagnosed with schizophrenia mm. during that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she brings that out in the article. Thank you for bringing that up because, and Chelsea, I want to come to you with this, just on your thoughts on this. A 1968 article, she points this out in her article. In a 1968 article in the esteemed archives of general psychiatry, schizophrenia was described as a protest psychosis in which black men develop quote unquote hostile and aggressive 
feelings. As a sidebar, it's something that they view many African-American men as to this very second. And delusional anti-whiteness. After listening to or aligning with activist groups such as Black Power, the Black Panthers, or the Nation of Islam. Sidebar again, I would imagine that they're adding groups like Black Lives Matter to this <laughs> and many other groups. The authors wrote that, this, that psychiatric treatment was required because symptoms threaten black men's own sanity as well as the social order of white America. And so however you feel about that, I thought that was an interesting analysis. This, this misdiagnosis or excessive diagnosis of schizophrenia. Chelsea, talk about that. I don't know much about this particular topic. When I read that, I thought that was very fascinating. Maurice brings about, about some wonderful points where that's concerned. Give us your thoughts on that. Um, this article was kind of a difficult read for me. Um, I, I am familiar with a lot of the things discussed in there, um, just through different articles and different readings. Sure. Um, and I, I think that at that time, you know, I'm big on, you know, people do the things that they think are right um, at that time. So while it was wrong, it continues to be wrong and it perpetuates, you know, the mistrust and that, you know, people of color are dangerous and things like that. I think that at that time, um, it, you know, there was, a there was a method to their madness. Um, I think it was used to suppress um, create the mistrust and things like that. And I think, but I also think that at that time, that was the thing to do was to, you know, suppress the people that, that weren't like you, suppress the people of color. So do I think that it, it, it has a long, um, you know, it has a greater impact on the larger community past and present and, and future as well? Yes. Do I think that that was you know, what, what was happening clear across the board in many different areas of, you know, medicine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think that moving forward, um, it, ways to address that is to, you know, have, put, have more people of color in, you know, in conversations, in situations where, you know, other people of color have access to, you know, people that look like them. So I think that's a way to kind of move beyond that. Mm -hmm. But I, at the time, that's, that's, that's definitely what it was. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dixon, before I bring Cherno back in, I mm -hmm. want to give you a chance to comment on that also, because again, as someone who doesn't understand this discipline per se, I, I was struck by that. The overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed schizophrenia for African-American men at such a high rate, as this writer points out, give me your thoughts on that. Well, I do think um, I would agree that they are misdiagnosed and it is the, the disproportionate rate. I, I would expand it that, um, again, it may be also just at the very core of worldview appreciation, understanding worldview culture and the worldview of individuals. When I first came to this community, because I was bilingual, I often worked with a very large um, 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 Latino population. And I remember being struck at the hospital thinking there was a large number, particularly of Latino men who are identified as paranoid schizophrenics. And I thought, this seems to be um, really, this is interesting. This is like every, you know, Latino or high number of Latinos are paranoid schizophrenic. There's something wrong here. And so my point is, is that there has to be multi-prongs. It's not realistic that 
we're going to have, um, you know, that you're going to have black or brown clinicians to be able to see every African-American, every Latino. So, but you do need them represented in the field, not only to see the consumers, but to educate their colleagues. And so we need to do more education. We need to help people to understand the disparities and the challenges. Um, my agency launched the diversity summit. And one of the topics, honestly, was, um, you know, white, white supremacy in the behavioral health field. Not that we're talking about people and individuals, but the mindset that may be, have, that may be present in systemic, um, historical, um, oppressive kinds of um, systemic structures or infrastructures and constructs that people may not even be aware of. So we need to do more about educating our community, educating our professionals, making sure that in training programs that they are really spending time to not just do multicultural competency and talk about culture at the surface level, but to really help our emerging professionals understand the implications of working with diverse populations, particularly in black and brown communities or historical um, community or communities that's experienced historical trauma. And so it will be a multi-phase um, um, strategy, I think, to really support that. Because the reality is you can also have people who, who look like you, who are of color, that the community can also be somewhat taken back and may not necessarily, may struggle with too. I've experienced that. You look too much like me and I'm afraid that the community is so small that there may be you know, issues of trust. So I think in general, we just have to do a better job of helping to have more people of color in the field and represented within the community that can access them, but then also making sure that those who are not by, who are not uh, racially diverse, that they're also trained adequately so that they can be able to do the very core, what you talked about early on in the article, and capturing being able to meet people at their core mm -hmm. and being able to appreciate the humanity of their situation, irregardless of race or creed. And so in the community to feel comfortable that they will have that experience wherever they go. Mm -hmm. Sure, don't talk about some of the efforts your agency is getting involved with, uh, be that collaborations or what have you, in order to expand this conversation throughout the greater community. Yeah, uh, currently we are, um have a um, committee, a new committee now that is collecting data on social determinants of health to try and identify needs so we can open up access to uh, certain individuals, whether it be travel, language, uh, nutrition, uh, lack of uh, history of uh, trusting doctors and healthcare to try to uh, break down the barriers and have them <clears throat> be more open to receiving mental health care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent, thank you for that. You know, Morris, we come back around to you, you know, on this particular topic. So the people are trying to become more aware or try to bring more awareness to this. I had an example of a church, a local church, actually multiple churches where there's an organization of Christian counselors who actually set up shop in these churches. And so they advertise to the greater public. The greater public can come and get services within that church. Members of that church can also 
clean services from there. And then staff members of the church, um, deacons, the, the, the everyday, the, the volunteers, they can get services there as well. And so I always thought, well, how convenient is that to go somewhere where you are already accustomed to bearing your soul, taking that extra step of saying, you know, right here in this facility, you can go ahead and room X and speak to somebody and process it. Maurice, as you're hearing that, is it time for community centers? I mean, I think about the community health net model. Is it time for the neighborhood centers and certain organizations to have an in-house professional in some of these touch points? You know, is it time for us to embrace that model more? It's, it's definitely time to embrace that. I think that uh, therapy or mental health being accessible in your community will invite people who otherwise would not want to uh, take, take part in those kinds of things. So if there's uh, access to mental health in your local church, in your local community center, like the, like the Booker T or the Martin Luther King Center, any of these agencies, if, if, if those opportunities are available, it's going to help so much more people because now we're reaching out to a larger population if mental health is in the, the homeless centers, now we're reaching out to another population. So as, as, as much as possible, this model of reaching out to everyone and making mental health and, and health education accessible is so, is, 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 is so vital because sometimes people feel as though that this is so impossible for me to get this, get this help. Mm -hmm. Well, this is how we correct that. Chelsea, should the, should the clergy be more involved with this conversation, in your opinion? And Dr. Dixon, I'll go to you next with that question. Should there be more clerical involvement, especially in, in uh, marginalized communities, with, with outreach and spreading awareness on mental health? Um, I think it depends. I think that if... You know, it, de it depends on what their role is. I do think that, you know, um, leading by example and talking about the benefits of mental health and, and being able to, you know, it, offering that as, a, as an option as well, I do think that, yes, it would be beneficial. I don't know what, the, you know, what it would look like, um, but I do think that bringing in those services into the church, um, if it's possible, Absolutely. I think any time where services can be put at the forefront um, is, is helpful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Dr. Dixon, you want to speak to that? We have just about two minutes or so left. If you want to give us your final thoughts on not just that, but encapsulate the conversation in general, please. Yeah, I do think that it, it would be helpful. You know, one of the concerns right now is that we have an incredibly strained workforce. Um, particularly around mental health professionals, irregardless of, of color and background. And so um, it, it would be great. I've worked with some of the pastors and the, the churches over the last couple of years. There's two in particular that I spent a great deal of time with training um, their staff and their congregation to be able to look at screening and, and, and be able to make um, touch points with the community for referrals about where their constituents can go. But again, I do think if we could have resources available, even if it was for teaching core teams in the, in the, in the churches um, as a whole, 
as these other two um, ministries have done, that that would increase at least people's access. Because I do think um, if anybody caught the forum I did a couple of weeks ago, you saw, not again, not even specific to color, but specific to the faith-based community, that there's a lack of trust around how the professional community, the behavioral health community will respond to people even around faith-based um, constructs. And so that crossed over to even, you know, crossed over racial um, concerns. And so there, there would be, I think, increased access and opportunity for people to have better experiences, better um, response if we were able to embrace and engage the churches more. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Adrian Dixon, uh, Ms. Chelsea Curlett, Mr. Maurice Clark, and Mr. Cherno Berry, thank you so much for coming on and bringing us your unique perspectives. Thank you for serving our community in this capacity. We've outlined the need and the fact that there is a, a lot of misinformation and a lack of awareness where this subject is concerned. It just underscores the fact that people who do what you do are very, very much needed in our community. So thank you all for coming on and thank you for doing what you do for our communities. I am Marcus Atkinson. We want to thank you, the listener and the viewer, for tuning in. That's going to be it for today's show. Tune in next month for more discussion and analysis with both local and national guests. You can listen to our show on 91.3 FM every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. We ask that you make that small one-hour commitment, if possible, for WQLN NPR. I'm Marcus Atkinson. We will see you next time.